Precious Father, today we thank you so much as we go into this lesson. We just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our thoughts and our hearts and you would give us clarity of mind. Most importantly, Lord, give us the Holy Spirit. Without Him, we are just running circles of foolishness. And so I just pray, Lord, for His presence to be more than in the room, but also in our hearts. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us and teach us today. And we come in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So yesterday we talked about how can a person obtain the righteousness of God. Does, do any of us have righteousness of our own, yes or no? no? We have no righteousness of our own, and it is impossible for us to attain it on our own. And did we find that can the law of God give us righteousness, yes or no? Does that make the law of God bad? No. no, it doesn't make it bad at all. It actually makes it very good because it doesn't, though it can't give the right, any righteousness, it does do what? It declares the righteousness of God, right? And so what must we have? What is righteousness? It's right doing. How many of you were at the morning session, early morning session with Pastor Mark, Pastor Mark Howard? Excellent message, excellent message on this subject. So the law has no ability to give us any righteousness. It only declares righteousness. Now, is the, is the, what is the number one purpose of God's law? It shows us what sin is. Defines sin. Well, actually, yes and no. But the first role is what? Well, before it convicts us, well, before it shows us where we're at, it shows us where God is, right? So, so the first role of the law of God is to declare the righteousness of God or to, or to, or to define righteousness as well, right? Then, as, as a following point, when it declares the righteousness of God, that righteousness is basically just kind of like trumpeted out in any place that there is unrighteousness, it reveals that by aligning it beside the righteousness of God. Are you with me? And so, of course, we who are sinners uh, are righteous or unrighteous? Unrighteous of ourselves. And so that righteousness of God is naturally going to do what? Reveal our, our unrighteousness, right? Or our sinfulness. Same thing. And so when it does that, it brings the sense of need, a sense of conviction, a sense of judgment that we are separated from Him, right? We're separated from God, and we, we don't want to be separated from God, even though we are, but the only way to not be separated from God is to have that perfect righteousness. But there it is, staring us in the face, the law of God telling us and pointing out all of our sins and revealing to us that we are nothing but unrighteous, and your sins have separated you from God. But God, through His mercy, cannot give us righteousness through the law, but He gives us righteousness from another place. Who is that? Jesus. Because the beauty of Jesus is that He can both declare righteousness, well, He is righteousness, He declares righteousness, but He can also what? He can impart it. That's the difference between Christ and the law. 
that they both declare the exact same righteousness. There's so many people today that, that think that, that the commandments, the righteousness of God's law and the righteousness of Jesus are two separate things. Jesus has no less justice within his person than the law does. If he did, then you could say that Jesus came from the law rather than the law coming from Jesus. Does that make sense? Jesus has no less justice within him than the law does. But the law cannot give mercy, right? It can't give mercy. It can't give righteousness. But Christ has the ability to do that. Why? Because He lived a what? A life of righteousness. Amen? I'm very thankful for that. So we need to find, this is just slightly reviewed from yesterday, we need to find a man who had never sinned but kept the law perfectly, who would allow us to have His righteousness as our own. And if you remember, we read Romans chapter 3, and I, do, I would like to read that again today because I think it's highly important. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. It says, But now the righteousness of God... <clears throat> Let's go back up here. Let's just back up here to verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth should be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And uh, so when he says there, those who are under the law, he's not just simply talking about Jews. He's talking about those who are under the condemnation of the law, right? The, the ones that have broken the law and have had the knowledge of breaking the law and now understand that they've broken the law. Correct? With me? And he says, all the world becomes guilty before God. Why? Because now they have a revelation of God's what? Character and His his righteousness, which is in contrast to their character and unrighteousness, right? He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in His sight. So he says, basically, once you've broken the law, you cannot do anything to fix that brokenness. It is just there and you can give your best effort, you can give it your best shot, but it's still going to be broken, right? It's still going to be broken. Even if you get it right after that, that moment in time still is there. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So in other words, he's saying, okay, look, like the law of God declares the righteousness of God, but it's not going to give you anything. But here's another place of righteousness that's besides the law, other than the law, where we can actually obtain it, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you a question today. Which righteousness would you rather have? If you could obtain your own righteousness from the law, if you could do that, but you can't, but if you could... Would you rather have that, or would you rather have Jesus' righteousness? Which one would you rather have? So I mean, like, here's the thing. Like, the reality is we cannot get righteousness from doing the deeds of the law. But if, even if we could, we'd still rather have His. So why then, when we trust in our own unrighteousness, when we still rely upon our own unrighteous acts, do we still prefer our own rather than His? 
See what I'm saying? Does that make sense what I'm saying? That logic? We still trust somehow in our own efforts to do something good of ourselves when we can't. But even, even if we could, even if God could go, whoo, now you can do it, we'd still rather have His, so why would we rather have His in the worst spot, see what I'm saying, <laughs> than even in the middle spot? But we still kind of do that, don't we? Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who on all and on all, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins which were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, sometimes people think that when we receive the righteousness of Christ, that, that, that somehow God is lessening His justice when He forgives us. He's not lessening His justice. He's just executing His justice on Christ, on the cross. Make sense? Okay? All right, so we read this yesterday, but it's worth reading again. This is from A.G. Daniels. How many of you know who A.G. Daniels is? How many of you don't know who he is? Okay, it's okay if you don't know. He was a conference president in the 1900s. I mean, uh, general conference president, thank you. In the, in the early 1900s. And he would have often a uh, very close correspondence with Ellen White. She would write to him. And, uh, but he wrote a book called Christ Our Righteousness, which I recommend. It's a pretty short book. It's up, I think they have it in the ABC. I'd encourage you to get a copy of it. He says this, Here is a man born in sin, or a woman. His or her inheritance is the worst imaginable. Is that true about us? It's true, isn't it? Our environment is at the lowest depths known to the wicked. In some way, the love of God shining from the cross of Calvary reaches his heart. How powerful is that love? Amen? He yields, repents, confesses, and by faith claims Christ as a Savior. The instant that is done, he is accepted as a child of God. His sins are all forgiven. You understand when I say His, I mean everybody, mankind. His guilt is canceled. He is accounted righteous and stands approved, justified before the divine law. This amazing, miraculous change may take place in one short hour. In other words, moments. This is righteousness by faith. So what is that saying in layman's terms? You tell me. Repentance, okay, yes, very true. But, but that's a piece of it. But how do we sum up the whole? I'll tell you. The moment that we absolutely, totally, completely are dependent upon God for our salvation, and not ourselves, and not any other method, that's the moment that we embrace righteousness by faith. That's the moment that that faith becomes real to us. And the other part of, of faith, the element of faith is that we totally believe the Word of God and believe what it, that it can do what it says it will do. Now, with Seventh-day Adventists, we tend to believe that. But here's what, we, here's what we often think. We tend to think and believe that God... It, it was easier for God to create the world in six days 
than it is for Him to change my heart. Are you with me? But that was the whole purpose of the Sabbath, is to remind us that the creative power of God is also at work in our lives to recreate our hearts. Make sense? And, and we believe the Word of God is true, but we often don't believe it to be true for our own lives. We don't think that God can, can really do the promises that He claims in our hearts and in our lives, and that what He does in our hearts can actually transform into actions in the life and in, the, in, in, in external behavior. Why do, how do I know that? Because we struggle with it all the time. Because we continually wrestle with things, surrendering things to Him, because we just don't think that He's going to do it. Or maybe we've thought we've seen, uh, we, try, we say we tried that, but then God didn't really follow through or whatever. But usually the fault is with us and not completely surrendering, isn't it? Um, look with me in Romans chapter 4, verses 2 to 7. Romans chapter 4, verse 2 to 7. It says, We'll start in verse 1 also. It says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly... His faith is accounted for what? Righteousness. Just also, just as David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So listen, that's not to say that works aren't involved, but righteousness by faith, the work that's involved is the work that Christ has already done for us. Does that make sense? You cannot improve upon that. Does that make sense? And our job, our work, is to surrender and yield ourselves to that completely and totally. But then what happens is that that righteousness, which is by faith, transforms the heart... And we're justified by God when we do those, when those, those other elements come with it, repentance and confession and those things. That's part of belief. Okay. That's part of yielding. That's part of surrendering the will to God. But there's no act that we're doing that justifies us. The act is that we're confessing what Jesus has done and confessing our unrighteousness and our need for Him and our willingness to receive Him. Does that make sense? And then that transformation will change the heart and then the life will begin to yield the works of God. Does that make sense? Not our own works, but His works. And He will both will and to do in us good pleasure. And that's why if you were there this morning, Mark talked about later that when Abraham laid up Isaac for sacrifice, and the book of James says that he was justified by both faith and works. And, and here's the thing, is that God doesn't want to just, He doesn't want the justification by faith or the righteousness by faith to just exist in our own hearts. He wants it to be demonstrated where? To the world, right? And so, and so when, when Abraham was willing to yield up Isaac, 
It wasn't for God's sake that he did that. And it wasn't for Abraham's sake that he did that. Because Abraham, even though he wrestled, he knew he would do it. God, even though he saw Abraham wrestling, knew he would do it. What it was for is so that God could point to Abraham, point to Abraham for the rest of the universe to look on and see that the grace of God is greater than the power of sin. And that the power of God to save and the power of God to change the life is greater than, than Satan's power to withhold man in sin. That God could, could hold a man's integrity through his love. He could maintain his integrity through his love. Does that make sense? And so God used Abraham to point, uh, as an example, to point the rest of the universe to that, hey, the power of my grace is enough to change the life even if he's in the pit of sin. That includes you and me. Amen? amen. How many of you can say amen to that? Amen. All right, now look at verse 21. It says, uh, let's just look here at verse um, 19. We'll back up here. Not being weak, and I promise we're going to get to Daniel. <laughs> and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, although already dead, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being, notice this, this is the definition of faith, my friends. Verse 21, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Now we sit here and we think about that and we sound, oh yeah, that's just, you know, we always believe that. We always believe that. And it sounds so cliche and we've said it a hundred times or a thousand times. But the reality is, you can read it about Abraham, but what about you today? Where is it in your own life that God wants you to demonstrate righteousness by faith? Not just to, to receive it, yes, but not just to receive it, but also it to be demonstrated. And I'll tell you where it's at. It's the area of life where God is convicting you right now, but you've been too uncomfortable or too unwilling to step out by faith and do it. That's where that place is for you today. And God will not reveal something else to you until you're willing to step out in faith in that thing. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And when, he does, when you do that, then he'll show you something else. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 23, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for who? Also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up our Lord from the dead and was delivered up because of our offenses and raised up because of our justification. How you can say amen? So when we believe in the Lord Jesus and what He did for us, these are my words, He imputes to us His righteousness gained that He gained while living on earth as a man, which we can never obtain from or by the law or in and of ourselves. When we accept Him, His righteousness is transferred to our account. How many can say hallelujah? And everything that you should have done was done by Him. And everything you should not have done was not done by Him. And all that, when we simply believe that He would do it for us, 
it's done. And you're accounted righteous. God didn't wait until Abraham laid Isaac on the altar before he declared him righteous. The Bible says he believed and it was accounted him for righteousness. How much time passed between when Abraham believed and God accounted it to righteousness? How long? Huh? It was immediately. And how quickly, when we put our own faith in the promises of God, does it take place? How quickly? Immediately. Does God have to wait? I mean, God fulfilled the promise to Abraham, yes, later. But it was accounted to him for righteousness in that moment. Does that make sense? And we have to believe that to be true for ourselves. We stand then before God as though we'd never sinned. The one condition to receiving this is faith in Him, hence the phrase righteousness by faith. Go with me quickly to Romans 5. We're right there, close by. Romans chapter 5 is the next chapter. Verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. And notice this. For when were the enemies, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His what? His life. So you see, it wasn't just... It was, the, it, was the, it was the shed blood of Christ that forgave your sins, correct? But it was the righteous life lived by Christ that is transferred to your life and you receive credit for what He did. Does that make sense? So, so it wasn't just simply the death of Christ that's important, the sacrifice of Christ. It's important, but it's also the righteous life that He lived that is given to you. Amen? Because, because this, the, the death of Christ and the blood of Christ may cover and forgive your sin, but that, doesn't, that just makes up for what you did bad. It doesn't make up for what you should have done good. Does that make sense? But the righteous life of Christ does this. How I many can say amen? Aren't you thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus and the life that He lived? He not only sacrificed his life, he lived a self-sacrificing life. Amen? And that's equally important. Review and Herald, November 4, 1890. By faith, the sinner who has so grievously wronged and offended God can bring to God the merits of Christ. I mean, you can say amen. And the, because if, if, if you're not going to bring that, you've got nothing else to bring, do you? And the Lord places the obedience of His Son to the sinner's account. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure. In this transaction, God pardons, justifies, and loves the sinner as He loves His Son. How much love does God the Father have for His Son, Jesus? What kind of love is that? Well, how would you suppose it to be? How do you put it in Yeah, how do you do that? But you know, in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and He says, you have loved them as you have loved Me. And He loves us 
Well, somebody might say, well, he only loves me because Jesus, he, I, because Jesus gives me his righteousness. But the Bible, you know, they might, it might, someone might get the idea that God only loves me if I'm good. But the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he loved us even before he gave his son. He loved us in our sin. And he loves us when our sins are removed from us and when we're like Christ. Isn't it a beautiful thing? Amen. And so God loves us as he loves his son. That's why he could not part with us and just say, just let them go. That's the way they want to go. Let them go. He would not let us go. And so, friends, with this type of assurance, with this type of hope, do we have any reason to not approach the throne of God? Not at all. We can approach it with boldness. Amen? We're almost through this, and then we'll move on. This is how faith takes the place of works and is accounted righteousness. This wonderful truth should be perfectly clear to every believer and it must become personal what? So it's not enough to just know about it. It has to be something that we actually act upon and exercise in our own lives. What's that? Yes. So it must become real. And so this doesn't become real for us. It doesn't become personal experience until we have wrestled with God. Yes or no? Until we have, we have experienced in the closet the knowledge and the experience that we have gone to Him by faith and He has accepted us based upon the merits of Christ. It's not just a, a head knowledge. It's not just a theoretical thing. It must be experiential. We must go to God and ask Him for this experience. And I fear that there are many in the church who have never done that or have half-heartedly done it or have just circumspectly done it but they haven't actually wrestled with God. You understand what I mean? And because of that, we have a church full of half-hearted, half-converted, half-committed Christians who just kind of whatever. I mean, but if we have this experience, a question, will it change our lives externally? What do you think? It's going to. It should enable us to cease from our own works, efforts, and struggles and enter into a calm, trusting, living faith in the merits, obedience, and righteousness of Christ. These we may present to God in place of our failures. We should now experience the peace and joy which such a marvelous transaction is able to bring to our hearts. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 what you say, but you know what, but my sin, but my sin, but my sin. No, 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 friends. It applies to everybody in every circumstance. How many of you are thankful for that today, Amen. including yours? But we must trust in it. Romans 10, 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 1, 16, 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who wants doesn't say everyone who performs. It says everyone who what? Believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But does that mean that the righteousness of Christ covers my sin and then I just live however? No. If Christ lives, let me just read the text to you. 
Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with what? With who? Christ. Christ. That is, that's the act of what that we talked about earlier. Starts with an S. That's the act of surrender. Complete, total, absolute surrender to God. Yes? Willing to give up anything that I know is separating me from Him. Whether it be adultery, whether it be lust, whether it be pride, whether it be honesty, whether it be whatever it is, I'm willing to say, Lord, I, I'm choosing Jesus over this thing. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to, to lay it down to you for His sake. And He's better than that thing. And I'm, lay, I, I, I'm coming to you and I'm just laying myself absolutely open and bare to you, right? That's the crucifixion with, crucif, being crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but then who? Christ living within me. So a question... This is what many people believe today, even in the Adventist church, that, that once I come to Christ and I surrender all to Him, that my life is just going to continue and I'm still going to continue to wrestle, right? I, I, let me just back up and strike that comment. I am going to always wrestle. I am always going to be tempted. But I'm just going to continue in the same course that I had before. If I surrender my heart to God and Christ comes and lives within me, if I, if I take that knife and I kill the man of the flesh by my choice to surrender to Christ, and Christ then comes and lives and dwells within me, is He going to live a life that is the same course that I lived before, yes or no? It's going to be a different what? Life. So whatever happens inside is going to be manifested where? Outside. You have the Holy Spirit. And, and so what I want you to understand is that it's not just about living an external life. It's not just about what's going on on the outside. Okay? And so people have gone off on this and they say, well, it doesn't really matter what you do as long as God knows your heart. Right? You've heard people say that. I mean, there, uh, yeah, there, I mean, yeah, I confessed it, so therefore so I, he's, I, I can keep doing it and God can... No, no. People don't understand that when I make a surrender to Christ, He is coming to live inside me. And He's going to live. He's not only going to give me righteousness, but He's going to live His righteousness through me. Does that make sense? And my role is to continue to be surrendered to Him by faith, trusting Him every day. Yes? And He's going to live a different life. That doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with temptation because Christ struggled with temptation, didn't it? It doesn't mean that, that, that there will be times that we will fall if we take our eyes off Him, if we cease to allow Him to be living in us. If we say, Lord, I want my own way in this moment, that's when we're going to stumble and fall. But if we live a surrendered life, He can live righteous life through us, both internally and externally. Yes or no? And the life which I now live in the flesh, in other words, in this sinful human flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Amen? Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living what? Sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God as your reasonable service, 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may, be, that you may prove what is good and acceptable, perfect will of God. And then the last one here, Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good what? Pleasure. So God, through Christ, is going to dwell in you and live out His life through yours. At the end of your life, which one do you think would be better? His life in you or your life of yourself? Which one do you think? Amen? Now check out this. This is, this, I found this passage and it just blew my mind. A union with Christ by living faith is enduring. But I'll add this. It's only enduring when every, when every other union must what? Perish. What does that mean? It means we have to burn the bridges to Satan's world. What does that mean? All the things that you run to that you know are not the best, you got to burn that bridge so you can't run there anymore. You with me? So He can't lure you across. Christ first chose us, paying an infinite price for our redemption, and the true believer chooses Christ as first and last. You're choosing Christ first because He chose you first over Himself. And best in everything. But this union costs us something. What I thought, I thought it wasn't by works. It's not. But it does have a price. What's the price? It is a relation of utter what? Dependence. To be entered into by a proud being. Those are like two super contrasting things, aren't they? Wouldn't you agree? Dependence and pride, they don't just go together, do they? All who form this union must feel their need of the atoning blood of Christ. They must have a change of heart. They must submit their own will to the will of God. So crucial. There will be a struggle with outward and internal obstacles. There must be a painful work of what? Detachment. As well as a work of attachment. What are we detaching from? Sin. What are we attaching to? Mm. Pride, selfishness, vanity, worldliness, sin in all its forms must be overcome if we would enter into union with Christ. What that does not mean is that you need to clean yourself up before you come to Christ. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, essentially, in order to continue to maintain that union with Christ, if we would overcome, we have to continue to surrender those things to Him. That's essentially what she's saying. The reason why... Many find the Christian life so deplorably hard. Why they are so fickle, so variable. Does that sound like our church today? Is they try to attach themselves to Christ without first detaching themselves from these cherished idols. And therefore, all we do is practice what? Idol worship. It's kind of like a key. And just imagine if... if, 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 the, if, if Imagine that, wait a minute, I have a key right here. Here's a key. Imagine if this key was your ticket to eternal life, right? And God puts this in your hand and He says, all you have to do is hold on to this thing all your life and when you get to heaven, present it at the door and you'll be coming in. What are you going to do with that thing? 
You're going you're gonna to throw it in your sock drawer? You're going you're gonna to throw it in your junk drawer? In the utility room? Mud room? You're, you're going to close your hand and you're going to put a chain around that and put a lock over your hand so that it never opens again, right? But then here's what happens. As Satan comes by and he presents something to us and he says, you know... I have this thing over here I think you would really enjoy. Now, each one, every person has a category of thing that pulls on them more than other things. So for instance, I'll give you a perfect example of this. For me, money has no temptation. I do not care about money. People gamble. Even when I wasn't a Christian, gambling had no appeal to me whatsoever. And the accumulation of large amounts of money, even as a non-Christian, had no appeal to me. I could care less about it. I don't care about drugs. I was a non-Christian. I drank a lot of alcohol, but I never had any appeal to drugs. But there were certain things, which I will not name, that did have a huge draw on me. And those things that have a huge draw on me, you may say, I've never been tempted with that in my life. But you may have a huge draw to money or some other thing, right? Everybody's got a thing or a couple of things that Satan knows how to push. And there's just this inner sensation that I have to do this thing. And, it, and there's a lot of mental stuff that goes on, science, and you know, we've talked about that another time. But, but here comes Satan along and he has this thing for you. And he says, look. You really enjoy this thing, and I've got something here I think you'd really like to do. He says, all you have to do is what? Hand me the key, me the key for just a minute. Not, he doesn't even say that first. And, and what do you say initially? You say, my key? No way. Jesus told me to keep this key, right? And I'm not going to give this key to you. But he, he nags and he pulls and he places things on you and and, 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 you know, for some, it's, it's um, you know, relationships. You know, I, I, this is a very interesting thing I've found, is that when, whenever you get in an argument with your spouse, Satan will always send a person into your life of the opposite gender that will say just the thing you needed that spouse to say. Put their arm around you and whatever. It's a very interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to that, but I've, I've tracked that and I noticed that to be true. But he comes along and he keeps on. And he says, look, like you don't have to give me the key permanently. All you have to do is just, just hold, let me hold it for you. I'll just hold it for a minute while you go do your thing and you come back and it's yours again. Right? So what do we do? We give in. And we give them the key. Take the key. <laughs> Not that you're Satan, like, but I'm just... <clears throat> so then what happens is we do our thing and then we realize, what have I just done? What a foolish thing to do, right? And we come back for our key and he says, you know what? You gave it to me. It's mine. Just like Adam yielded the world to Satan, we yield the key. But then Jesus comes. That, and you know what this key represents? It's our will. It's our power of choice. You with me? And our wills then become captive to Satan. 
and he takes over and, and the temptations become harder and harder to overcome. But here comes Christ and he says, you know what? I'm going to lay down my life and I can't even say it with as much power as it is. I'm going to lay down my life. He says, there's only one thing in the universe that can buy that key back for you and it's my life. But I'm willing to do it. And so he does it and Satan doesn't want to give the key, but he must. And so Jesus holds out the key to you to take it again. And when you take that key out of his hand, there's the print from the nail. That's the price it costs. Are you with me? And so he says, I'm giving you the power of the will to choose. Now you can choose all day long, but you got no power to resist. But he says, but when you choose to align your will to mine, when you choose the right thing and you say, Lord, I'm choosing the right thing, but I don't have the power to do it, but I'm yielding my will to you. You read Steps of Christ, you'll find it. He will take your will, which is weak, and he will infuse it and inject into it divine power. The same power that Christ also pled for when he was on the earth. And then he gives that will back to you and you have the power to overcome. You have the power to say no to that thing. Does that make sense? But unless we're willing to say no to that thing, not that we're willing to, not that we overcome the thing on our own, but if we're just willing, back up, if we're willing to say no to that thing, that's when he can give us the power to overcome it. You can't overcome it on your own, but you can say no to it. And He can give us the power. Now, watch. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. A change is... And when it says new heart, it doesn't just mean the first time you accept Jesus. It means every day when you make that decision, every hour. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a supernatural work bringing a supernatural element into human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress which he holds in a revolted world, and he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. But unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we, must, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. We must inevitably be under the control of the one or the other of the two great powers that are contending for the supremacy of the world. It is not necessary for us deliberately to choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to come under its dominion. Did you know that? We have only to neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. Now let me break that down very clearly for you. That means this. You can be a Seventh-day Adventist church member and still be controlled by the power of darkness. You can go to church every Sabbath and return tithe faithfully, hold a church office, and be a pastor and still be aligned with the power of darkness. Because the reality is this, many church members think that because they have not conscientiously chosen to align themselves with darkness, that they are automatically aligned with light. But that concept only works one way. 
It's only when you align yourself with the light that you are not aligning yourselves with the darkness. Does that make sense? But if you neglect to align yourself with the light, you automatically become darkness. And so in other words, you can't sit on the fence because Satan owns the fence. Are you with me? You must conscientiously choose Christ. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agency, Satan will take possession of the heart and will make it his abiding place. The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart through faith in his righteousness. Now, some people would take that statement. They would say, well, you know, you, you know, that just sounds a little bit severe. And you're telling me if, if Jesus isn't dwelling in me that I'm controlled by Satan? Are you really saying that to me? That's exactly what I'm saying to you. And that's the truth. Without any hesitation, I say it. I'd say it to the highest authority on the earth. It's exactly what we're saying to you. Because there is no up opposite. We either have allegiance to Christ or allegiance to Satan. That doesn't mean we lose our own person. That doesn't mean that we lose our individuality. It just means that our, in our individuality, we must choose which side we're going to yield to. Unless we become violently connected with God, we can never resist the unhallowed effects of self-love, self-indulgence, and self-temptation and to sin. Anybody in the room tell me if it's possible to do it in your own experience. Some of you are older than others. Tell me if it's possible. Because everybody who, re who resists that idea, out of all that have resisted it, I've found no one that said, yeah, I can do that. I haven't found it. We may leave off many bad habits. For the time, we may part company with Satan, but without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to Him, moment by moment, we shall be overcome. How many of you have found that to be true? And without a personal acquaintance with Christ and a continual communion, we are at the mercy of the enemy and shall do his bidding in the end. How many times have you left Christ for that moment, for that day, for that hour, for that week? You know, in your heart, you haven't absolutely rejected him. Right? You haven't just said, I don't want anything to do with him. But you haven't conscientiously aligned yourself with him. You, you see what I'm saying? And so we think too often that as long as, as long as I keep him in my back pocket, I'm okay. As long as I'm, I'm just doing the thing, I'm okay. I may not be fully surrendered and fully aligned, but... I'm not fully rejecting either, so therefore I'm all right. The Bible calls that Laodiceanism. And that's been our problem for the last hundred years, is that we are not fully and conscientiously aligning ourselves. You got me? So how many of you today want to align yourselves fully with Christ? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to go to the closet and do it. So I'm appealing to you today to go to the closet and do it. Amen? Amen. Now, let's look at Daniel for a few minutes. We've got about 20 minutes here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I hope you gain something from the other. But without that, this would not have been as effective. So it's important. All right? 
Let's go to Daniel, and I'm going to try, I'm going to, I would like to look in 20 minutes in the first six chapters of Daniel. And I want to give you an example of each chapter, and each chapter of the principles I've been sharing with you as a foundation. So go with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. <clears throat> and you all are familiar with uh, all of these stories, I'm sure, and, uh, but I do want to focus in on this. Now, here, here's the thing that happens in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is a captive in Babylon. We know this. We understand this. Daniel is presented with food which he cannot eat, and he refuses to eat it, right? And he requests to eat the food that God wants him to eat. And we often focus on the fact that Daniel ate God's food and was ten times wiser. But what we don't often do is focus upon why he did that. Okay? So you look at Daniel 1.8, and I'm just going to jump to the point. But Daniel did what? Purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies or with the wine that he drank. So the idea that many times we get from that is that Daniel said, I'm not going to eat it. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to grit my teeth, and if they chop my head off, so be it. But that's what I'm going to do. You understand that even Daniel, in his own strength, had absolutely no ability to resist that pressure. You understand that? Look, they changed their names. They changed their home. They changed their, their clothing. They changed their education. They changed their food. It, it, it's, it, they were entirely surrounded with Babylon. Does that sound similar to, similar to us today? I mean, you can't go anywhere without seeing half-naked women. It seems like everywhere I go, it wasn't like this 20 years ago, but it seems like everybody has... I mean, I'm not, just, I'm not picking on this stuff, but I'm, I'm just giving you an example. Everybody has tattoos these days. I mean, it just seems like more and more the world is saturated with Babylon. From the education system, to the fashions of the day, to the food that we eat. We, Daniel was no more in a position, a better off position, to resist the world than we are today. He was in exactly the same environment as we are today. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Now, does anybody know what that word purposed actually means in the Greek? Or in the Hebrew, I mean. Nope. I mean, yes and no. I should say yes and no. Is it said out loud? Acknowledged out loud? Nope. Mindset? Hmm? Mindset? Yes and no. Yes. Yes and no. See, here's why I say yes and no. Yes, because what it really means led to those things. But it's not the core. Are you with, does that make sense? Because when all those things we say focus on the external first before the internal. But let me share this with you. What does it mean to purpose something in your heart? It means to give self over to a task, situation, or idea. One of the meanings of the Hebrew word purpose is the English word Give. To say that Daniel purposed is to say that Daniel actually gave his heart to God. That's what the phrase 
the deeper meaning is. So Daniel understood that he could not resist in his own power, as godly as he was, as much of a, of a, of a let me just back up here because I don't want you to miss what I'm saying. As much of a Christian life as he had been given by his parents, his upright, Ellen White says all those things benefited him, okay? They benefited him. They helped him. It was a good thing that he had the upbringing that he had where his parents taught him all the ways of God. But he, all those things in the end could not help him until he had first done what? Surrendered his own heart to God. Does that make sense? And then he was able to resist with firmness. Then his habits... His habits had been established, but his habits became more firm and he became totally determined. So in other words, in Daniel 1 verse 8, he had a righteousness by faith experience as a young boy, as a young man. He had always dedicated his life to God, but just like when Joseph was going into Egypt, Ellen White says that as he was on the road, he prayed and, and first he was feeling sorry for himself and then he prayed to God and God changed his heart. So Daniel said, look, Lord, my heart, I can't keep this thing. You're going to have to do it. And so I'm giving my heart to you. And I want you to empower it to resist everything that I need to. Okay. Throughout the book of Daniel, we'll find the same decision being made again and again. Daniel never sought conflict for conflict's sake. But when tested concerning obedience to God, Daniel always chose God because Daniel had given him his heart already. We will see that this was a key that led to each success. So listen, without Daniel giving the heart to God in chapter 1, he would have never been able to have the courage to make the request. Does that make sense? Just merely his external habits would have not empowered him to do that. Okay? Now, go on with me. Let's, let's just read, let me read this first before we go on. This comes from uh, Prophets and Kings. You'll see the past 480 something, you'll see it at the end here. Had Daniel so desired, he might have found his surroundings a plausible excuse for departing from strictly temperate habits. Now, I've heard people say, <laughs> I had a very well known Adventist, which I will not name, who told me that their friend, who was a non-Adventist, invited them to eat and provided shrimp. And they said, well, how could I eat this shrimp and offend my friend? Right? When instead of recognizing it, it could have been an opportunity to witness. And when we give our hearts over to God, we are going to obey Him and refuse anything that, that compromises that Though we refuse it very sweetly and kindly, we still refuse it, right? So that would have been an excuse, right? But notice this. Daniel could have found his, in his surroundings. Now, how many of you find that people say, maybe you said, well, unless I do what my friends, unchristian friends are doing, I won't have an influence over them. So I have to compromise in order to gain an influence with them, right? And so we use our surroundings as an excuse to compromise what God has asked us to do. And you know, John the Baptist, the Bible says that he was eating wild locusts and honey and he wore camel's clothes. 
John the Baptist stood out as different, didn't he? Yet the Bible said he did not compromise God's mission, purpose, and identity for him. Yet we find in, in, in Matthew chapter 3, the Bible says that the whole region came out to hear him preach. Why? Because he had an influence, he had a, a life of godliness. Now what I'm not saying is that it's, it's not that what we wear, what we eat, and what we do make us godly. Those things don't make us godly because there's lots of Adventists today that don't wear jewelry and dress modestly and have been vegan all their lives, and they're just absolute nasty people. I mean, you can, you can be a vegan and act like an animal. Are you with me? You can eat clean foods and act like a pig. So those things don't make you godly. The righteousness of Christ makes you godly, and the righteousness of Christ will naturally transform the heart to yield a godly life. So what I'm not saying is it doesn't matter if we do those things. It does matter. It does matter, but what I'm saying is we need, they need to be done by Christ doing them through our lives, by first yielding the heart to Him, and then doing them. And that's when they have influence and power over others to also do the same, which I'm going to show you here in just a minute. Are you with me? All right. So we just got to get the cart before the horse, amen? Wait a minute. Yeah, that's right. He might have argued that, dependent as he was on the king's favor and subject to his power, that there was no other course for him to pursue than to eat of the king's food and drink of his wine. I want you to think about compromising difficult, uh, compromising temptations with other people that you've been in. And how you think, might think to yourself, oh, there's no other way for me to get out of this thing. But, for should he adhere to the divine teaching, he would offend the king and probably lose his position and his life. I've had people tell me, look, my boss expects me to be at those work meetings on Friday night. Those work dinners where we're entertaining customers and doing all those things. If I don't do that, I might lose my job. Well, Daniel was going to lose his life, and he still didn't do it. Why? Because he had fully given his heart to God. Now, to that person who compromises here today, whoever, anyone in this room or across campus, I don't know the hearts of men, I don't pretend to know, but we do know that compromise happens. I would not dare to judge the heart but the fruit of the life would suggest that they're not converted or they're half converted, right? We're not here to judge, but the point is, what we do know is that when a person has fully given their heart to Christ, they will not do those things unless they've not been, unless they've not learned them and understood them, do them in ignorance, right? That, that's very possible. Most of the world is worshiping on a day. Uh, that's not correct, but it's an ignorance because they love the Lord, right? So we're not, you understand that we're not, what I'm not doing here, right? Okay, thank you. Very good. Should he disregard the commandment of the Lord, he would retain the favor of the king and secure for himself intellectual advantages and flattering worldly prospects. Major difference here, isn't it? What was the thing that made the difference? What was it? It was the surrender. It was the surrender. 
That has always been the issue of every Bible giant, spiritual giant in the Bible and throughout history is the issue of surrender. And that will be the issue for God's people in the last days is surrender. That will be what enables them to stand against the mark of the beast and etc. But Daniel did not hesitate. Why did he not hesitate? Because he had surrendered. It, it, it doesn't mean he didn't wrestle. It doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. I mean, that thing was right there in front of his face. All these thoughts were running through his mind. If I, if, if I, if I refuse the king's food, I might lose my position. I probably will lose my position and quite possibly my life. If I do accept, I'm going to be exalted. I might be beside the king, etc. All those thoughts were racing through his mind. You know they were because Satan was right there putting them in. You understand? So he, it wasn't that he didn't think about it. It wasn't that Daniel had something better. But the Bible says, he, or Ellen White says, he did not hesitate because of the surrender. And when we surrender ahead of time, we will not hesitate. When we bow low to the God of heaven, we will not hesitate to stand tall before the kings of earth. The approval of God was dearer to him than the favor of the most powerful earthly king. Dearer than life itself. Why? Because he had surrendered. He determined to stand firm in his integrity, let the result be what it might. He purposed or gave his heart to God so that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat or with a wine which he drank. And this resolve, in this resolve, he was supported by his three companions. They had done the same. And reaching this decision, the Hebrew youth did not act presumptuously, but in what? Firm reliance upon God. They had not choose to be singular, but they would be so rather than to dishonor God. Should they compromise with wrong in this instance by yielding the pressure of circumstance, their departure from principle would weaken their sense of right and their abhorrence of wrong. The first wrong step would lead to others until their connection with heaven severed and they would be swept away by temptation. Now, how many of you find this to be compelling? Are we also not surrounded by Babylon? I mean, I'm telling you, these stories of Daniel 1 through 6 are not just sweet bedtime stories for your kids. They are the exact circumstances that God's people will find themselves in before Jesus comes. Are you with me? And if you remember, everybody knows this, everybody knows this, that in Daniel 3, he sets up the what? He sets up the golden image, correct? Are you with me? And what is that a, a parallel to in the book of Revelation? The mark of the beast, correct? Right? So Daniel chapter 1 comes before Daniel chapter what? Have we reached the time of the mark of the beast yet? Yes or no? So but it's the time right before the mark of the beast, correct? When Babylon and the world's culture is flooding the earth. So what time period would that be talking about? That's talking about now, isn't it? So Daniel chapter 1 is a direct parallel, not to some time in the future, but it's a parallel for God's people now. You got that? Does that make sense? 
And if you notice that in the time of, of, of Babylon, when Babylon is just like ruling the world and, and everything is apostate and etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what grabs the world's attention in chapter 2? What is it? It's prophecy. Is it not? It's prophecy. The prophecy captures the king's attention, and at the end of time, it will capture the world's attention. That's why we don't stop doing prophetic seminars, by the way. And then, it, and then when the whole world mind is turned to prophecy, prophecy even is more fulfilled in chapter 3, which at the end of time is the parallel to the mark of the beast. Are you, are you with me, yes or no? So the point I'm trying to get to you, to get you to understand is that that test of the food was a very small test that prepared them for the test of chapter 3. If they had failed the test in chapter 1, they would have certainly failed the test in chapter 3. You got that? And when you have the, in chapter 3, you have this mark of the beast issue, and then you have the, the, the fiery flames with Christ appearing in there, and that's a symbol of the second coming of Christ. It's a revelation of it. It's, a, it's kind of a prelude to it. Are you with me? So, right in the core of chapter 1, you find the key to enduring every test, both big and small, now and then, which is what, friends? Surrendering the heart to God. Now, were there only four Hebrews that went to Babylon, yes or no? Four Hebrew boys. There were what? Multitudes. What about them? If they would have stood tall, do you suppose the Bible would have mentioned them? Sure. So it's likely, I don't want to say all because I don't exactly know, but it's likely that at best some, likely most, at the worst case all, were doing what? They were feasting on swine at the king's table. And in chapter 3, they were bowing the knee to the golden image. And if that's a parallel to our day, what's it saying about God's people now? They are enjoying the pleasures of Babylon. But in chapter 5, there's going to come a handwriting on the wall, isn't there? Very much so. Now, I think that's a good place to pause. I'm going to come back to Daniel tomorrow because we didn't finish it. And uh, look, these seminars never go the way that they plan to go. You go to any one of them and they're always going to either overlap or, or, or they're going to run over and have to pick it up or whatever. So we're just going to view it as one big seminar all week, okay? And we'll get to it all. We'll just have to uh, take it piece by piece. But my friends, if there's anything you leave here today with, it is the picture of surrender. It is the understanding that you will not pass any test without a surrender of your life to Christ. And I mean a complete surrender. Not a half surrender, not a partial surrender, not a, not a most surrender, but a total surrender. And this is the experience that God is waiting for His people to, to choose so that He can pour out His Holy Spirit in the last days. Amen? And He wants to pour His Spirit out upon your life and upon your local church, and upon the Michigan Conference, and across the NAD in the world. But He can only do it 
if we're willing to let go of the things that are destroying us and embrace the righteousness of Christ, which is your life. Amen? But you cannot have both. There's only room for one. Thank God the love of Christ is greater than the power of sin and it can pierce the darkness of this world and reach our hearts today. How many want to have that love pierce your heart today and the righteousness of Christ replace, not cover, but replace your unrighteousness? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray today that you would give us that experience. And Lord, today, there may be somebody here who you are convicting of something, I don't know, something that maybe needs to be surrendered, something that needs to be ceased in the life, something that maybe hasn't been done in the life. I don't know, Lord. But we come to you by earnest faith, recognizing our own failures, our own faults, our own shortcomings, and seeking the blessed forgiveness of Jesus. And Lord, You've promised that if we believe in His righteousness and recognize our own unrighteousness, confess it, and be willing to choose to forsake it, it will be accounted to us as righteousness. And so right now, whatever You're bringing to our minds, that needs to be surrendered today, I pray that in this moment, in each of our hearts, we'll make that surrender just now. We'll say, Lord, quietly in our own hearts, I'm choosing now to surrender that thing to You. And we pray today, Lord, that it will be accounted righteous to, righteousness to us in the books of heaven, and we would be restored by faith as sons and daughters of God. This is our prayer today, O Lord. Help us not to resist the influence of Your Spirit upon our lives, but let us have a transformation that goes from the inside out, not just information, but a transformation. This is our prayer today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.